episode of Cinema 60, Bart and Jenna discuss the life and work of Albert Finney during the 60s when he achieved his peak of popularity and commercial success. Hi, Jenna. Hi. So you you said to me, let's do an episode on Albert Finney because he just died. So this is that episode. (laughs) Yeah, you know, only only a couple months off. Yeah, it was a bummer. I mean, Albert Finney is, um, it's, it, he's an interesting guy. He was a, definitely a big, important figure in the 60s. And yet, I think most people my age and, and your age probably think of him as that old guy that showed up in movies a lot. And uh, he did that too. <laughs> he is a major character in the movie that really started everything for me. He's Leo in in Miller's Crossing, and that's a movie I've studied more closely than any other movie, and it was just huge for me back in the early 90s, and it really got me into looking closely at movies, so Albert Finney was was right there at the beginning of it all for me. Well, not the very beginning, but, you know, when I started taking things really seriously. So it was was a big deal to me when when he died, because I knew there'd never be a Miller's Crossing 2 were there talks of a Miller's Crossing too? No, never. Well, he was a big influence for me because he was played Dewey Wilson in Wolfen from 1981. Ooh, which I don't I've never seen that. <laughs> it's actually a, a pretty I, you know, I'm I'm not usually a person that says that you know, this is a horrible film. Wolfen's a horrible film. Uh don't watch it. <laughs> But it's a horror movie, so it should be horrible. Yeah, there you go. Well, he was also in, you know, just to list this stuff out, because everyone knows him. If Even if you don't know him, you, you do know him. You've seen Aaron Brockovich. He was in that. He played uh, Ed Mastery, or uh, he was in Ocean's 11 and Ocean's 12. He's the old guy. <laughs> Big Fish was a recent thing that he yes. got a lot of attention for. Big Fish. He was in Skyfall. He was? I feel like I stopped thinking about Albert Finney, so when he would show up in movies, I didn't even really realize, didn't register for me that it was Albert Finney anymore. He's just some old guy. Well, so in a way, I think that that was kind of what Albert Finney wanted, because he got a start, which we're going to talk about, because we're basically talking about in the 60s was, you know, where he broke through and and became a, a, a big name in acting. And in part, because he was gorgeous. He was a very good looking young man. And he did not like that. He, I mean, you know, he definitely womanized, you know, most of the world, but he actually didn't really want to be seen as a, as a pretty face. He wanted to be seen as a serious actor and and as a character actor. And uh, it's interesting because at the, what we're going to be looking at in this episode is really the arc of him breaking through, through a certain type of film and then doing his best to subvert all of the success that he has and basically try to to toss it on its head. He doesn't want to obviously not be working, but he also seemed to have a real knack for making things as uncomfortable as possible for himself in some ways, or as challenging, I guess, is probably the more positive way to put that. Yeah, there's there's a real divide right in the middle of these movies. We're doing six movies, and it seems like the first three are of a piece and the and the last three are of a piece. And... Um, very different types of movies 
in certain ways. He's very different in them, anyway. I mean, he's definitely charming in his first three movies, but he's not, I, I don't know if he's such a pretty boy. I mean, when he's drunk and sweaty in Saturday night and Sunday morning, I, I wouldn't want that guy in bed with me. <laughs> I'll take him. <laughs> I mean, he's a jerk in that movie. He's a charming jerk. Right, which is my favorite kind of jerk, but only in movies, not in real life, because I've tried that in real life and didn't work. <laughs> well, they can't all be Albert Finney's. Yeah, you're, you're telling me, pal. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, so Albert Finney, just for some sort of some vague background information, but I think it's kind of interesting because it, it all kind of ties together and, and it dovetails into our first movie, which is Saturday Night and the Sunday Morning, which came out in 1960 which was uh, a, a big success, and he was the reason for that success. And he plays in that movie a really working-class kind of guy, but in real life, he was born in Salford, Lancashire, which is just outside of Manchester. And he seems to have had, by, all, by his account, a pretty happy childhood. He grew up in a middle-class family. He was a sporty guy. You know, people, he was popular in school, even though he wasn't a great student, but he enjoyed acting a lot. And, you know, he pursued acting continually because he kind of felt like he didn't know what else he wanted to do, and he was good at it. <laughs> so in part, he actually, he even points to his secure childhood as something which made him sort of crave, in a weird way, instability, because he kind of kept, as I was saying before, trying to, every time he felt too comfortable he would try and pivot in the opposite direction and, and challenge himself which is something that he was continually looking for and eventually leads him in later in this episode to even star and direct and semi uh, write uh, his own film uh, and all at the age of like 30 by the way when he starred in in saturday night and sunday morning he was 24 yeah, I think he's playing 23 in the movie, and he seems about that age. I mean, that's pretty young to hit it pretty big. Do you know how he hooked up with Tony Richardson? It seems like they had a, a working relationship. Was he, Did Tony Richardson direct him on stage before he starred in The Entertainer? Yeah, so he was he did a lot of stage plays and Tony Richardson had had directed him in the theater and actually gave him his first his first role in a movie. Technically, this came out the same year as as Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, but he he's in it for 5 seconds really. He's in the the movie The Entertainer with Laurence Olivier, which is a good movie and maybe we can talk about it in another episode because it kind of deserves it deserves it, but he's he plays a brother who goes off to war and he's in one scene and you don't really get a great sense of him quite frankly. You know who else was in that movie and got his start was Alan Bates, who was one of his fellow students at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And Alan Bates of course ties all into this angry young man 1950s uh, literary movement and then sort of turned into this very much a stage and movie movement in the late 50s and, and 60s with Albert Finney is definitely you know one of the guys at the head of this yeah Alan Bates Richard Burton was a big one he did uh, look back in anger uh, which was based on a John Osborne play and John Osborne is probably the playwright most associated with the whole angry young man thing and Tom Courtenay they're the leading figures of the British new wave angry young man kitchen sink whole movement there and I'm probably going to use all three terms interchangeably even though they sort of put the emphasis on different aspects of what was happening at the time they're all part of a of an ecosystem of anger and depression <laughs> And at the center of it was, uh, as, as far as the filmmaking aspect of British New Wave 
uh, Angry Young Man kitchen sink drama thing. There was Tony Richardson, Carol Reese, and Lindsay Anderson, who, uh, who, who started this whole free cinema movement in the 50s, making these documentaries like We're the Lambeth Boys and Mama Don't Allow about a jazz club and, you know, about British kids and, and you know, just these verite documentaries, you know, just trying to bring more reality into the, the British cinema and break away from the, these Ealing comedies and the, the Gainsborough costume dramas and... and they started working on a small scale to have the you know they'd have these free cinema showings where where people would make their own short films mostly documentaries and and they're you know they'd screen three at these festivals and the whole British New Wave scene kind of came out of that. So Albert Finney's first starring role, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, he plays Arthur Seaton. It's based on an Alan Silito novel. He, he's another author who's associated with the whole angry young man thing. Uh, he also wrote the story that Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner is based on. And uh, so he's not quite as angry as Richard Burton is in Look Back in Anger. He's more just a fun-loving guy who doesn't want to... He, he's never going to let the bastards drag him down. All he's out for is a good time, and, and the rest is propaganda, according to, to Arthur Seaton. And uh, he's just a factory worker who saves his money so he can go out on the weekends and have a good time and drink in, in the pubs and have sex with a married woman. And he's uh, a nonconformist and just doesn't is not interested in the fake values of, of mainstream England. And uh, he's rebelling against that just by doing whatever the hell he wants. He's a charming guy, but you realize that, uh, and he realizes by the end of the movie that you know, he needs to refine his motto a little bit uh, because there are consequences to just working for the weekend and going out and having fun and sleeping with whoever you want. He has a great line in this movie, which you might recognize, dear listener, as uh, a title of an Arctic Monkeys CD. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. That is from this movie. And it's also a perfect line. I mean, he's rebelling against everything. And he's just, he's that, that end of teenager dumb and the beginning of being an adult. You know, he's working in this shitty factory where he makes bits of metal for tuppence a day. He drinks like 10 beers a night just because he's 24. And that's what you can do when you're 24. Any woman that he wants, he'll take, as it's said. His best friend is uh, the uh, in the movie is the manager from A Hard Day's Night, which we're going to talk about. The short one. Norman Rossington plays Bert in this movie. And uh, yeah, they, it's basically, I mean, the whole film, as you said, it's just like lads being lads gonna lad kind of movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, he gets into trouble. He He knocks up a married woman. Who he doesn't seem to really like that much, you know. He's just sort of just because it's it's fun to you know undermine society. It seems to be really the reason why he's trying to bang her. He does. He seems to have a fondness for her. He does the right thing anyway. He tries to do the right thing. He, he doesn't want to raise her child with her or anything. And when when a sexier young thing comes along, he's happy to set aside his dowdy married woman to to pursue her. 
There's a great line when when she tells him that she's pregnant, and she being it's Brenda, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, who's Rachel Roberts is the actress, and she tells him, you know, she tells him she's pregnant, and uh, Arthur's response is, "Well, you've already got some, so <laughs> what's the difference if you have another?" <laughs> <laughs> totally, just like you know, crushing. She starts crying. <laughs> I think the key to this movie really is Albert Finney, though, because Arthur Seaton is a bastard. Like He does a lot of lousy things, but he's so charming, and he seems like, despite his boorish behavior and childishness in a lot of respects, there's it's just Albert Finney's charm that really makes you sort of care about what happens to him, and you want things to work out for him in the end. I wish we had watched Don't Look Back in Anger so we could discuss these two movies in uh, in tandem because they really have a lot to do with each other. But a lot of this angry young man thing is, you know, these aren't terribly sympathetic characters that these novels and plays and movies are about. You know, they're jerks, but there's something. Like, they, these characters tap into this rebelliousness, this um, dissatisfaction with the status quo that a lot of people have. And I think... That's part of why we're willing to go along with these nasty guys. Finney is, he's really, uh, you know, especially for this being his premier leading role, he completely owns it to the point where actually people thought that he wasn't acting because he was an unknown. Everyone just assumed he was this rough and tumble northerner who, you know, he he wasn't. I mean, he was was from the north, but like, you know, that wasn't at all what he was like. There's even an interview that I watched with him where he says like, uh, you know, Arthur is the type of guy that I would move away from at the bar. He, he's someone who, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's a little too forward and, and I'm more reserved and I wouldn't like that type of guy so much. But yeah, I mean, like he actually, you know, he he reminded me in this movie of like Malcolm McDowell and like Oliver Reed and that we're sort of working class bluntness of Richard Harris, who are all, you know, sort of peers of his Malcolm McDowell a little later on. But he's a perfect example of a bad guy who doesn't realize that he's the villain in his own story. You know, he, he's sort of, you know, raging against a, a broken system and he feels justified and trying to grab happiness where he can take it. But he's he's still a prick and he's, you know, he's basically... Every time he does something selfish that he feels he deserves, and maybe he does deserve to have this moment of, you know, something good because his life kind of does suck, you know? Like he has this, again, he has this crappy job. He lives with his parents and, in, in uh, you know, this sort of working class row house. You know, his neighbors are all gossipy jerks and, you know, he doesn't have that much. But to then be angsty and take advantage of other people doesn't really solve his problems either. It's just sort of a a continuation, like I was saying, of of that sort of teenage naivety. You know, you kind of root for him throughout the movie to maybe just acknowledge this stuff because he goes through this arc of being of really intense situations. And he does try to do the right thing to a degree. You know, once he realizes that he's in it and he gets caught, he's trying, he has to work his way out and figure it out. But he also doesn't totally seem to acknowledge what really has happened or, or he doesn't seem to have the capacity to truly learn from his experience. Because even in the end of the film, his last line is, you know, it won't be the last stone that I throw. And he's, he's not, he's talking about stones, but, but he's also, I mean, that's it. Like that's his whole life is him throwing stones and chucking things for the heck of it. And, uh, you know, kind of dealing with the consequences as, as just something else to spice up his life. Shooting pepper pots in the butt with BB guns. So as you were saying, this movie was a big hit and there was this sort of 
demand for these realistic movies about northern working class people. In a way, it was a bit of a flash in the pan. I mean, we, we had Look Back in Anger and, and Room at the Top and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning were all big hits, but Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner was not, and uh, The Sporting Life was not. And, and, you know, just in a matter of a couple of years, they're the the public's taste for these northern working class stories has sort of disappeared. I mean, they're still, you know, still continue to make them and they're still, I mean, I think it got taken up on, on British television by shows like Coronation Street and, and, and things like that. You know, it's lasted, it lasted through the 70s. Mike Lee still makes movies of this type. But in the early 60s, there was demand for these stories. And I think that I mean, some of it has to do with just the bluntness in in the way that it handles sex and and pregnancy and abortion and and subjects like that. Yeah, abortion is a big one. And I think just the shock of seeing it handled in such a matter of fact way in a movie was probably a lot of the appeal for people. But then once there's no more shock value, it maybe lost some of its luster. Well, there's only so much misery you can take. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's also it's telling that, you know, the, the next movie that he then chose to work on, and this became really an even bigger hit, which I don't think he anticipated, because actually in between Saturday night and Sunday morning, he actually was offered and went through a pretty rigorous um, process of auditioning to be Lawrence in Lawrence of Arabia. And he was chosen, and then he promptly turned it down because he didn't want to get caught in having to do like a five-year contract to star in big blockbusters, which was like exactly just the opposite of what he was looking for. He wanted the character stuff, but obviously he also wanted to get away from the working class rough and tumble image because that was he. everyone thought that's who he was. And then so he ended up passing on Lawrence and ended up getting Tom Jones which was just as big of a hit and ended up typecasting him sort of again. And everyone thought that he was this charming rogue. It's a period movie set in the mid 1700s, uh, based on a on a well known novel by Henry Fielding. But it's it's sort of um, it's a period piece for for people who don't like period movies. I think. I mean, we're we're sort of used to this style of period comedy now, with you know, like the you know, Three Musketeers movies in the 70s and that sort of thing. But in 1963, when Tom Jones came out, people thought that a a major literary adaptation had to have a certain amount of seriousness to it and to be, you know, filmed in a very stead way. And, a, you know, great literature deserves um, great seriousness. And this movie sort of just wings it. It's done in a very off-the-cuff style. You know what it kind of reminded me of real briefly was it, uh, but it, even though they're not really anything alike, and I actually like Tom Jones a lot better, but The Favorite that just came out, yeah, well, that's what people are saying about that one, too. Period movie for people who, who hate period movies. You know, there's a lot of fast motion and people talking directly to the camera. You know, a lot of tricks that the we saw in the French New Wave uh, slightly before this. And 
it's the the British New Wave was more about uh, you know northern working class people, but uh, you know at this point it started. This is directed by Tony Richardson, who is the director most responsible for the British New Wave. Uh, Tony Richardson and John Osborne, John Osborne being the author of Look Back in Anger, directed by Tony Richardson, uh, started this production company called Woodfall. And uh, they were producing these low-budget movies uh, that, you know, these kitchen sink dramas that, that were in the early 60s were pretty big hits. But this, this Tom Jones was sort of, a, you know, them going off in another direction. John Osborne wrote, adapted the, the, the Henry Fielding novel for this movie. But it's, it's a very different tone than what he, you know, than the Angry Young Man stuff that both of them were doing previously to this. It's more just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks sort of movie. Uh, sort of in the same direction that Hard Day's Night went, and that's another movie that's also considered part of the British New Wave, is just, we'll try whatever we want to try, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But uh, it definitely worked for this movie as far as audiences were concerned, because Tom Jones was a huge, huge hit on, on both sides of the pond. It won Best Picture, did it? Or was it nominated for Best Picture? Uh, it was nominated for 10 Oscars, and it won... Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Original Score. So that's something. So it's funny. This movie, I, this is the second time I've seen this. And I, I, ta- I like Tom Jones because it's, it's weird. <laughs> and because, again, Albert Finney is very good looking and, you know, I'm allowed to be a little shallow. But I don't love this movie. And I think in a lot of ways it's sort of a strange Best Picture winner. Uh, but what do you think? Yeah, it's that type of 60s comedy that I don't like, where it's a bunch of people running around and shouting and, and being wacky, and you know, sort of that it's a mad, 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 mad world, John Goldfarb's uh, style of movie, Russians are coming, Russians are coming. But I enjoy it. It's fun. Like, and the, fir- the first half of it is just, you know, it's very episodic. None of the bodiness seems to be connected to anything else. It seems like a, a greatest hits of the novel in a way, and um, it takes most of the movie before you start to see how all these pieces fit together. And I think when it's just sort of scattershot, wacky comedy, it's not quite as interesting as when it does start to come together at the end. It's just a brief rundown of the plot. It is essentially that he, uh, Tom Jones is a bastard who uh, has been adopted by uh, a fancy lord <laughs> squire i don't i don't know what what kind of nobility a squire is but he's he's landed gentry anyway yeah and he falls for um sophie western but she has this high title and because he is a bastard he can't really marry her without bringing great shame to her family so they both hide their feelings and then honestly from there it just kind of gets a little wacky it's sort of about him being kicked out of his house and and a little bit i guess barry linden's is sort of similar except that this is like the sex farce barry linden except tom jones is a nicer guy than barry linden i mean you're you're on tom jones's side really his only flaw is that he can't say no to a pretty woman and that's about it that's really the only thing that gets him in trouble and with so many women throwing themselves at him all the time it's you know how can you blame him right (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, he's this sort of Casanova. It's funny when when I, I haven't seen this for like 10 somewhat years. And so rewatching it, I, I didn't really remember too much about the plot. And I was sort of pleasantly surprised to have remembered that, yeah, that, yeah this is really, um, it, it's he's not Casanova in that he's seducing women, but it's more that they keep seducing him. And yeah, what's a poor boy to do? Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's actually kind of fun because it, in a way, I think this actually has a sort of female gaze. You get a lot of Finney, you know, looking really beautiful or being topless or even naked. It's all women sort of looking at him. Uh, the camera pointed to him. And, uh, and again, all of them seducing him and with no shame. Uh, they're all thrilled to, to bed this handsome young man. And, uh, you know, he's just he's just living it. And uh, yeah, that, that and then I also think that the movie is shot pretty nicely. Apparently, Tony Richardson, it took him a while to shoot this. And they they had a bunch of problems with, I think, weather and, and the like and squabbles and, and stuff like that. But um, he so Tony Richardson actually didn't love this movie and apparently was embarrassed that it won so many <laughs> awards because it just wasn't what he wanted. And you can sort of see that. I think it's a little bit weird. It's a little, it, it does feel a little bit pieced together and, and the stitches are a bit large. And he does some stuff though that's ambitious with the camera. I mean, like there's a, a really great shot. I don't really like fox hunting. Personally, I'm pretty against it, but there's this really wonderful helicopter shot of all the dogs and the and this deer. It's not a fox, it's a deer and, and horses. And it's about like 15 minutes of just, you know, everyone in the fields chasing everyone and, and horses jumping and it looks beautiful. It looks like a painting. It is really exciting the way it's shot and the way it's edited together. I'm no fan of deer hunting, especially uh, the way that it's done with 50 dogs and uh, right. on their horses chasing uh, at top speed. I don't want to get judgmental about the activity itself but it's shot in a very exciting way i feel like the movie really kind of picks up at that point point. and there's also the infamous food scene yeah that's great yeah where it's basically just albert finney and his mom it's uh, jenny jones oh yeah yeah but he doesn't know that no she's calling herself mrs waters yeah so. which is like <laughs> watch the movie and, and you'll understand it actually, it's like a, it's like a weird moment that they touch upon for five seconds and then they explain it and, and they really didn't linger on it. And I kind of think it would have been in some ways more fun <laughs> if they had lingered at least on the horror of, of that just to make him suffer a little bit, but it's, it's fine in the end. Don't worry about it. But uh, yeah, no, there's this great scene where the two of them are eating and they're, they're like, uh, you know, I fucking each other. <laughs> through uh like really like like they eat uh the different a whole like different platter of foods it's like one scene they're eating crab and then it ups to chicken and then beef and then oysters and then pears and then wine and it just gets increasingly like it and it's you know it's shot from this sort of you know across the table from whoever so they're staring right at you at the, staring at the audience as they're doing this and yeah, I mean, it's it's funny, you know, I, it definitely is something that's been done before. So I feel like to watch it now, this wasn't so exciting and hilarious, which it apparently was for the time. This was like, people can't stop talking about that one scene. If you think nine and a half weeks is sexy, watch Tom Jones. 
Yeah, those are the two set pieces I was going to bring up myself. They really kind of stand out. And they're sort of not really connected to anything. And it, it's sort of just the choppy style of this movie is just, you know, oh, we've got a great scene here. Let's just throw it in here without much explanation of why it's there or what bearing it has on the rest of the movie. And But I guess it's a comedy and that's what you can do in comedy, right? I, I kind of wish that it was more of a comedy. Like I, it was actually, it felt more like a period drama to me than otherwise. And I almost would have, it's like I kind of wish that it had picked one or the other because as it is now, especially you know looking back on it it does feel like it's sort of unsure in some ways like you know that whenever he breaks the fourth wall it's a little it like it's funny it's amusing but it's also a little bit like are you gonna do this more (laughs) (laughs) he only does it like maybe once or three times or something and this is a pretty long movie yeah it's also sort of reflective of the style of the original novel too where henry fielding is always addressing the his reader directly and and is being very self-conscious about the story that he's telling. And I think breaking the fourth wall like that is sort of keeping with the, the style of the of the original, probably the best cinematic way to, to, to get that cheekiness across. Did you read the book? Uh, I read half of it. <laughs> I loved what I read, but it's a long book. And you know, if you don't have to read it for a class, it's, it's, it's hard to get through the whole thing. I think one one interesting, um, you know, chain between this movie and, and Saturday Night and Sunday Morning is, again, this sort of idea that it's the upper class twits versus, uh, you know, kind of the working class with a good heart. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that, you know, that everything that, that Tom Jones does, you know, he still has a good heart, even though he's a flawed guy and... Uh, you know, versus though the the sort of evil dogmatic uh, older brother and his uh, friends, and, and they're all like scheming and plotting and trying to screw Tom Jones over constantly. And you know, they don't all come across as bad people, and you can't you know help but like him. And never mind that that Albert Finney is is charming and cute. Yeah, well, everybody likes Tom, even the the noblemen who are really in in charge of his fortune. They you know, Squire Allworthy and, and and Squire Western both think Tom's great, but they can't. He's he's too wild. He's too, and he's not. He doesn't have noble blood, as far as they know. So they can't treat him like the son that they always wanted, because you know, for that reason, he's just not. He's not noble. But otherwise, he's you know, that's that's his only flaw, really. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because after Tom Jones. Uh, Albert Finney became very vocal and uh, he didn't really give that many interviews in general, actually. And he kind of kept to himself uh, because he wasn't ever comfortable with fame and especially not that Tom Jones level of fame that he received. And he wasn't comfortable with being seen as a sex symbol. And he sort of ran actively from it. He sort of he says like, like, I think I mean, maybe I don't think I'm very handsome, but I guess I'm attractive kind of line where you're like, shut up, idiot. Like. You're beautiful. I don't think he's that pretty. I think he's charming, and that goes a long way. I mean, clearly Peter O'Toole is 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 much prettier, and he's a much better Lawrence than than Albert Finney would have been. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Like I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I love me some Peter O'Toole as well. Well, no matter how you you feel about him, I still think that he was beautiful. But also, it's kind of interesting that he that he actively was running from that. Which, uh, quite frankly, by the end of, you know, his life and as he aged, you, you can tell he was running from it. <laughs> he didn't age well at all, actually. I'm going to be, you know, sorry, buddy, but you, you didn't age well. And, and it kind of seems like you, you didn't want to. 
I think it, that seemed like a choice and it helped. It certainly opened up the roles for character acting. But after Tom Jones, he also took a year off and decided that, you know, and everyone told him this was a career suicide. And he said, I've been working for eight years. Screw it. You know, I'm just going to take off. He didn't even show up for the Oscars. He didn't care. He found out while he was partying on a yacht. Uh, someone told him listening to the radio that he lost out on best actor to Sidney Poitier. And he made everyone on the yacht stop and then raise a glass to Sidney Poitier <laughs> and cheers for him and then went right back to boozing and, and banging every person on that yacht. Um, so that was kind of nice, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, he, he um, you know, he didn't want to be on these contracts. He didn't want to end up, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, a, a symbol of anything. He was very vocal about how he never wanted to be seen. Uh, he never wanted to sell an image. He didn't want to be project an image. He really just was there. He always called acting working, which is kind of interesting, especially when you, you gain that level of fame. But then, yeah, and then the next movie that he made was a tiny bit part in a war movie. So, yeah, he he followed up Tom Jones with The Victors, which is... Um... You know, he just has a cameo at the end as a Russian soldier. His next major film was Night Must Fall in 1964. <laughs> Directed by Carol Reese, who uh, also directed uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. So this is definitely still you know, part of the, the uh, Woodfall, British New Wave, uh, you know, little independent kitchen sink genre. And it's also based on a play, the way that, uh, that a lot of these Angry Young Man movies were. An old play, which had, a, which had another movie uh, in 37. Right, which I haven't seen. And I think in general, the the earlier version is much more well-known and respected than, than this movie. But, uh, you know, not having seen the the uh, the earlier version, just have to base my opinions on this, on this one movie. And I thought it was surprisingly engaging. You know, it has some narrative problems, but uh, I, I thought it was a pretty good shocker. This movie scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I granted, I, I am pretty easily creeped out by films but i mean it's pretty rare that a, an older movie scares me honestly and this one was really creepy and also like really well acted and really insidious and it made me afraid of handsome crazy eyes albert finney yeah finney is he switches back and forth between handsome charming young man and and psychotic killer really well so it's basically just that he's he's like this working class welsh guy there's a there's a big point made of him having this welsh accent which i think is is a, a big part of the plot quite frankly because he is the boyfriend of like a, a maid uh, in this you know upper class household which is inhabited by an older woman mrs bramson who's played by uh, mona washburn and then uh, her daughter is Olivia, who is played by Susan Hampshire, and they live alone here, and he sort of sizes up the situation. His girlfriend's pregnant, Dora, I believe, who is uh, played by Sheila Hancock, and she's sort of a, she's kind of a homely but sweet girl, and, and especially in, in comparison to this, you know, this very blonde and beautiful uh, young woman who lives with her mother. 
And her mother's kind of a stodgy old woman in a wheelchair, but he manages to seduce everybody. And that's what's so creepy about this. (laughs) And it's like really insidious and terrifying to me because he's this creep who infiltrates this family with his sweet smile. And he has this, you know, the Welsh accent and the Welsh in general are kind of like, it's like having a Southern accent in in the U.S. Like people look down on it. They think you're stupid, it, you know, which is bullshit. But it's just like that's kind of the, the cliche. So, you know, it's that he sort of no one suspects him. And he even says he's like, oh, I'm not very bright. You know, like he sort of bumbles around trying to do things for everyone. And then the way that he seduces both the mother and the daughter is for the elderly mother, he he sort of, he treats her as a younger woman, essentially, and on top of treating her like a mother figure, while the daughter then falls for him after he ends up spending a night listening to her and treating her like a human being, unlike the other boyfriend that she has who's courting her and who's pretty, uh, you know, obnoxious and... You know, and then also the two of them are sort of caught in their own world and they're not really looking at him as a human being as much as a sounding board for their own self-worth. So they're not innocent, but I'm not going to blame them for what happens. (laughs) No, but he is smart about it. I mean, that's how he makes the lower class Welsh accent work for him is that they don't realize how smart he is. And if it weren't for his um, craziness, he could have gotten whatever he wanted out of these rich women but eventually if you have this drive to to kill and it's never it's not a suspicion type thing where you don't know oh is he a killer isn't he a killer you know from frame one in this movie you see him (laughs) uh, taking an axe to a woman that he he is actually a murderer and there are there are moments where you're like oh maybe what i saw wasn't really what i saw right but you know when he's looking at his first victim's head in a basket you're pretty sure that he's as guilty as they come but it, at the same time you want he's so charming that you keep hoping oh maybe he maybe he isn't this vicious killer but you know his his craziness just uh, gives him away eventually because he uh, he's he's driven to kill again yeah i mean that that this movie starts with literally him murdering some and then it manages to build that momentum and build that doubt from there is just fantastic like this was really it was just such a great movie and it had so many really awesome and creepy i mean it was clearly i think inspired by like psycho there's i mean there's like a whole weird sort of almost sidebar trying to like in the last five minutes explain why he does what he does which spoiler is mommy problems essentially sort of a little bit like he seems to not like older women (laughs) but they don't really dwell on it and they don't seem to really care and quite frankly it doesn't matter because he's just so creepy and and strange it does try to hang his craziness on this whole mother thing he was abandoned by his mother when he was young but it gets it's so non-specific about it it definitely doesn't have that scene at the end of psycho where it's a a psychiatrist is explaining why norman bates is (laughs) It was has been driven to murder. It's uh, you know it's 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 a lot more vague, but it also is probably a bit more specific than it needs to be. But I wonder if how, how much of that is in the original and how much is inspired by Psycho. I also there there is some beautiful camera work in this. There's even I mean there's like basically that it's almost like Blair Witch. Like they mount the camera on the front of the older woman's wheelchair. So that as she moves, she's, you know, as she's moving around the room, you see the background swinging in and out of the frame and, you know, and not her face, which is super effective and super creepy because he's, you know, stalking her somewhere in the house. 
So, you know, as she's turning, you kind of see him literally slinking past in the rain, holding like a meat cleaver. And it's like he he like sort of comes and goes like real fast. And it's terrifying. It, it was shot so well. And it was just and he's so creepy. He kind of reminded me that um I mean, number one, like he reminds me so much of Malcolm McDowell in these early films. And it's very clear where Malcolm McDowell was was very clearly influenced by his performances. And then he went on to produce Malcolm McDowell's films, which uh, we'll talk about in a second here a little bit. But one of my favorite movie tropes is the handsome, crazy guy who likes to murder people. And this is 100% up my alley. Plus, we even get to see him like showering blood off like perfect. This is all I wanted. He does spend a lot of time in the tub and in the shower in this movie <laughs> and in the and in a pond and in any excuse to get uh, the clothes off that guy. <laughs> right. But, you yeah, know, I mean, but what's so creepy, honestly, though, again, is just that like it, it, you realize how low the bar is for <laughs> women and what they expect out of men, you know, like not only that he, he ditches his pregnant girlfriend real quick and real mean. He, he really like flips a switch on her and suddenly is, is just super nasty to her. And then, uh, you know, is, is basically then trying to cut all of the other men out of these women's lives. And, and they accept it because, you know, he's treating them like human beings and he's acknowledging them. And it's like, oh, like, we, we haven't come so far, huh, ladies? It's still kind of that easy, I think, unfortunately. But yeah, in all these early movies, he's trading up for the, uh, the pretty young virgin seems like Albert Finney's thing, but he takes a nice break after this movie. It's another three years before he stars in another movie. What was he doing uh, in that time? I think he was just theater. He he continued with theater a lot, which I think you get a lot with these angry young men types. <laughs> they all can't seem to leave the theater. But I think it's that there's a, you know, there's a challenge and there is, um, you know, an electricity to live theater. And it's also a time where live theater was celebrated as, as much as movies. So, you know, you could you could do you could do it, you know, and I feel like now when, when you see actors in theater, everyone thinks they've died, which was a little bit the case back then, too. But then he made um, two for the road, right? Yeah, 1967, directed by Stanley Donnan, who uh, at that point was a pretty established Hollywood director. He'd done Singing in the Rain and On the Town and, and other movies with Gene Kelly. And, and more recently, he had done, um, you know, maybe just a year or two before Two for the Road, he did Charade with, uh, with Audrey Hepburn. And uh, he brought her back. Oh, he also did uh, Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn. So he's got, uh, he's, he's worked with her uh, quite a bit. And he brought her back uh, in, in 1967 to star as Joanna, the wife of successful architect Mark. And uh, two, two for the Road is a road movie, as it says. But it's actually, you know, five or six different road movies that are, that are cut together to, get, to show you different time periods in the, in the relationship between Joanna and Mark. And it's really, I mean, before I start to get into how much I hate this movie, I, I, <laughs> I have to say it's really impressively put together. The way that it's laid out and the way that it jumps from time period to time period and you're never lost as to you know, what point in this relationship we're, we're seeing. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, with Audrey Hepburn's outfits, 
which by um, are glorious. By, They're glorious in this by movie. the by the, the the latest sequence, the the end of their relationship. If it is in fact the end, she's got the most outrageous costumes I've ever seen. Some great sunglasses. She belongs in the tenth victim. Yeah, it's like real bug eye sunglasses. Probably the most sixties outfits that we've seen. <laughs> pleather. Oh yeah, jumpsuits she has like and... a. A patent pleather <laughs> jumpsuit. She has a ton of Emilio Pucci dresses, like those psychedelic, really bright color dresses. These like wrap head like wrap around bug eye neon colored sunglasses. Man. Oh, and a like a silver space dress that's made up of very large sequins. It's brilliant. She's living my best life. Well, this movie is is hugely respected. People love this movie, and it was a you know, it did a good amount of business when it came out, but it really, I feel like it doesn't play at all to a current audience. I don't know if it feels dated or, or what, but it's, I mean, it really feels like, you know, this is 1967 and these movies are all, like, all the interesting movies are geared towards kids and, you know, this hip modern style. And this seems like a very conscious effort to make a hip modern movie for adults. And, you know, I consider myself an adult, and these aren't any kind of adults that I relate to at all. I had a similar problem with this movie. (laughs) And it's weird because it does seem that people love this movie. When it came out, it actually, it sounds like a lot of the reviews when it came out are not really that different from what you're saying and what I'm about to say. Which I will also preface, Audrey Hepburn was 37 when she shot this movie, and Finney was 30, which I kind of like. And they also had an affair. <laughs> and apparently the on set, they got along really, really well to the point where everyone thought they were like best friends. They were constantly joking around and flirting and having just like a really fun time. And especially when her husband wasn't around, um, Mel Ferrer, who was incredibly hostile and jealous. Apparently, whenever he was around, she sort of closed up. And Albert Finney even apparently got emotional when he talked about, you know, sort of seeing her on her own versus around her husband because there was just such a night and day difference in her attitude. But it's a little bit gossip and I think nobody really wanted to gossip about her because everyone loved her because she apparently was just like, you know, the most charming and classy and sweet and down to earth human being. Finney, I think, seems like people liked him as well. There's a lot more. There's a ton of stories of very explicit Albert Finney having sex with random hot women stories out there if you're interested, but you can Google those. But I didn't really see the chemistry. I didn't really understand this romance. And it felt super childish. And it also just didn't feel like a strong enough relationship to really carry this movie, which was an interestingly structured film. It is about, you know, the the rise and fall of this relationship and then viewing them at the same time, you know, like being able to to be living in the past and the present and the future all in at the same time uh, kind of film. And the problem, though, is that, you know, Albert Finney is is not very lovable in this movie. No. He's kind of a jerk. He, he's not terribly nice to her. There's even a line where he's like, I don't know what you saw in me. And you're like, I don't either. <laughs> It's the role that he plays in these next three movies that we're going to talk about. Like, you know, three years after Night Must Fall, and it seems like he aged 15 years, and he's playing these successful men who are dissatisfied with their lives, and he's not charming at all anymore. And when he tries to be, it doesn't play. He doesn't seem charming. I have the same problem with Audrey Hepburn in this movie, too, though. It's when they're trying to turn on the charm, it really just seems so phony. 
I kind of have that problem with Audrey Hepburn a lot, though. I think she's best when she's trying to play somebody she's not. Like, she's the perfect Holly Golightly. That will always be her finest performance. But when she's supposed to be genuine, I never really believe her. Hmm. I, you know, I, I believed her in this, except that I just didn't like, uh, you know, these characters meet and they fall in love, world run, uh, romance after a week, and and immediately she wants to get married. He tells her continually that he doesn't want to get married and he doesn't want to have kids. And then she's basically, I'm in love with you, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then they end up getting married and then she gets pregnant eventually, which doesn't seem to surprise Mark too much. But um, he also, you know, sort of starts to turn into this like detached and uninterested guy who cares more about his work. But to be fair, his work is kind of taking off. And then all these problems arise. And it's like, you know, we all saw this coming, you know, like you guys got married way too quick and you weren't you're not communicating well. And I don't know if you're meant to be maybe you're I'm meant to be a more romantic person that sees this like, ah, this like young love. And this is, you know. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be, but I can't help their like help but think like, you know, eh, you guys are kind of doing this to yourself. Like this is a really immature and uncool relationship that you're just like pressing further and further and further because you're too much of a wuss to give up on it. And on one hand, this is a lot of relationships that people are in. So I mean, and it's definitely like I know people who've been in these crappy relationships. It's honestly observed. I feel like it definitely is dealing with issues that are in lots of marriages but it doesn't portray it in a very convincing way that's my problem with it 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 sort of focuses on making the movie itself as cute as possible and it thinks that that cuteness is going to translate into us you know loving the two of them together i mean if i'm going to be honest it's just the the fact that when it's trying to be funny i don't think it's very funny and that's what i hold against this movie more than anything especially when uh, you know Kathy and Howard show up Mark's ex-girlfriend, Kathy, shows up with her husband and they go on a road trip together with them and they're just this this horrible American couple with a with an obnoxious kid, Ruthie. And all of that stuff is terrible. It's insufferable. I actually sort of like that stuff because it was just like a, an even more toxic <laughs> situation. So it actually made me a little more sympathetic to Hepburn and Finney. Well, that's what it's there for. We're, we're supposed to right. say, oh, well, they're not these two, so... I guess maybe they do have a good relationship. But then they basically are. I mean, like, and, and, and so on that sense, it's interesting that, you know, they can both acknowledge that this is a bad marriage and then yet they still fall into the same traps or, or at least very similar traps in their own lives. So it's sort of, I, I, it was it was interesting. It was okay. But it is like, you want to smack the shit out. Like, I, I'm not really for corporal punishment either, but I want to smack the shit out of that child. I don't know if you noticed, but this movie was written by Frederick Raphael, and I looked up his credits, and he actually co-wrote Eyes Wide Shut with uh, with Stanley Kubrick. Huh. And there are a lot of similarities between this movie and that, and I actually think Eyes Wide Shut is a far more convincing portrait of uh, a marriage gone sour. If you look at this movie as strictly about just the rhythms of romance and life and how the tides ebb and flow and... You know, you fall in and out of love with your spouse kind of thing. Uh, fine, like whatever. There's good days, there's bad days. Personally, I kind of zone out when it's just two people bickering. <laughs> it's like not my favorite movies. But um, what is kind of interesting, and I, and I wonder if this sort of is coming through slightly in this movie, was that Albert Finney in his own life 
felt pretty out of touch with his own emotions in a lot of ways. I think that he was kind of, from what I can glean, he seems like the type of guy that was much more comfortable showing emotion on stage and, and in films than he was in real life, which is a little bit of a British thing and a little bit of a 60s man thing and a little bit of his own issues. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you know, he married a, a new Amy, another actress, um, and she cheated on him with Ryan O'Neill. Wow. And he, he claimed that he sort of shrugged it off. He claimed that wasn't like a big deal, <laughs> which I mean, maybe was truthful because I'm sure he cheated on her and, you know, and he was a womanizer anyhow. But his reaction was like, ah, eh, it happens. Lola had both Tom Jones and Barry Lyndon. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> she deserves her own episode just for that fact alone. And then apparently when his dad died, his like public comment was that oh, I liked him very much. <laughs> which seems very British. And then when his son was born, he even also had this remark about how uh, he was surprised at how, how sort of distant he felt after the birth of his son, which is something that isn't, you know, that's a fairly common reaction, I think, that you hear about at least. It's not like he's, he was a psycho. I don't think he was even a cold guy, really, but he did, did seem to have this problem expressing himself. And then by this point, he had uh, started up his own production company, Memorial Enterprises, which went on to produce a lot of Lindsay Anderson films, such as uh, in Malcolm McDowell, like If and Oh Lucky Man, which are two of my faves. And then basically he came across this script for Charlie Bubbles, which is the the next film that we have here, uh, which is 1967. came across the script yeah well it was it was basically a, he claims it was an outline because it was sheila delaney who also came from salford which is the same town he grew up in and she was someone else who had overnight success at the age of 19 as as a screenplay writer she wrote a taste of honey and apparently she had written this rough script for this film and he latched onto it immediately because he totally understood a lot of what what gets touched on in this film this was also, you know, he said in interviews that the reason why he wanted to, to take this film on besides feeling a sort of kinship with this character, he even straight up says, there's a, he, you know, quote, he says, if they reject Charlie Bubbles, they reject my feelings, my attitude and everything. But he directed it because he wanted it the challenge. He thought acting uh, comes too easily to him and he needed to make it harder on himself. And so uh, he ended up producing and, and directing and, and acting. And this was the first time he'd ever directed at all. And, and you know, he even said later on that he almost didn't regret it, but that it was, um, you know, much harder than he thought to, to both act and direct at the same time, even though he loved directing and he loved the freedom of it. And he says in interviews, he's like, I would love to direct again, maybe not act and direct. But unfortunately, he never directed uh, after this at all. And this was the only film he ever directed. He did a terrific job. I mean, it's... So good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was seriously impressed. Although for him to say that if people reject this movie, they're rejecting me and my feelings is a, is a bold thing to say because it's a really unlovable movie. And he's playing such an unlovable character that it's sort of doomed to failure with this thing, at least as, as far as that goes. Charlie Bubbles is a 
successful novelist who sold a lot of books at a very young age and and sold sold his books to to be adapted into movies and so he's he you know he's he's loaded he's become incredibly successful just like the real albert finney charlie bubbles has achieved this this amazing success and is dissatisfied with it he doesn't enjoy his life and he feels disconnected from everyone and everything that's happening around him and um you know, he, he's not, you don't want to know Charlie Bubbles. If this is Albert Finney, then I, I don't want to spend any time with him. But I, I sure enjoyed watching the movie. Well, I mean, so he, it definitely was not him, I think, as much as he just very much related to a lot of the themes. I mean, he even said he was like, my relationship with my son is nothing like what's in this movie. My relationship with my ex-wife is nothing like in this movie. I don't, I don't know the truth. <laughs> But there are definitely parts of this where you you realize that this does feel at least like a a caricature of his life in a lot of ways. You know, he's shown in these very ritzy spaces where he's talking to um, his accountants about dividends or something, you know, and and he's in this really posh place and he feels so clearly uncomfortable and ends up seeing his friend across the room. Smokey Pickles. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Smokey Pickles. Who's played by Colin Blakely. And this is when I knew that this was going to be a movie that I liked. I mean, first off, what's really interesting is that, you know, the camera immediately sets the tone by having him having this boring conversation and the camera itself starts to wander. Mm -hmm. It starts to look at everyone behind. Everyone's having conversations and eating and it's just sort of drifting off and, you know, totally uninterested in, in the conversation that's being had at the table with its star. And uh, it's it's like it's it's great. And then he later he sees his friend Smokey in the back of the room, and then he walks up to him like, "Hey, how are you?" He's another good northern lad, the way that Charlie is. And they end up having this like really yucky <laughs> food fight. <laughs> it's pretty gross. I mean, like they really like just go in all for it. You know, they're like slapping pasta on their heads and their shoulders, and they're wrecking their beautiful suits. And and it's this really surreal moment where no one really notices. Like everyone's sort of you know, sort of giving them a side-eye glance, but no one's, like, stopping what they're doing. Like, oh, yeah, they're also British and proper that they, they can't acknowledge that, that this is happening. They have to keep going about their business. and Yeah, and, and even better, they, then they walk down the street covered in food, uh, like arm in arm. This food fight is the only time in the whole movie I think you see Charlie Bubbles enjoying himself. Like, the only time a smile crosses his face is when he's... Like making a huge scene in this posh restaurant. And I think that that's the key to this character and sort of the key to, to Albert Finney himself. He is Arthur Seaton. There is some deep part of Albert Finney who just, uh, his, his, his main motivation is not letting the bastards drag him down. If you expect something from me, I'm going to give you exactly the opposite. I'm, he doesn't want to be part of the, the world that he's expected to be a part of. And, totally. And then, But this is the only scene in the movie, really, that brings that out, that troublemaking, nonconformist aspect of his personality. Right, because in the next scene, they, they go to, uh, like, Herod's or something, and suddenly you see them posed like mannequins coming down an escalator. I love this, like, these touches of surrealism that happen throughout this movie. I, I kind of wish he had gone for it even more, but as it is, they work really well because you you start to realize exactly what he's doing. And he's just sort of visually showing you emotions. You know, I think that there's a, there's a lot of thought and intelligence against, like, these choices. You think that they're kind of fun, weird little moments, but they're, like, 
they're so in tune with what he's trying to show you. I mean, even the food fight scene, it's just the the discomfort you feel in these fucking places. <laughs> you know, he he doesn't belong there. You know, yeah, maybe he's rich, but he's this northern guy. You know, he doesn't he feels more working class than than he does uh, upper class, even if he's middle class. And, uh, you know, that this sort of like that you feel like everyone's watching you because you don't belong in a space, essentially. And then, you know, you walk down the street and, and everyone just presumes you are what they see. So they're not going to question it either. And and it's this disconnect. And then they come off with these corduroy suits and, and these like, you know, turtlenecks. They look very sort of working class and they go into a pub and they play a pool and uh, they don't belong there either. He doesn't belong there either. He, you know, everyone in the background, it looks like a dying hobo. <laughs> and everyone's dead quiet. And the two of them are just drinking a bunch of beer as his friend gets super pissed drunk, can't even stand up. And, and there he is alone again. You know, it's exactly at the same damn table, you know, not feeling like he doesn't belong. And then he goes back to his house, which is this gorgeous, uh, you know, three story townhouse. The, the way that this is shot, there is like about six security cameras and the camera is just stationary on these cameras that are in each room. So as everyone walks into the house, they park the car in the garage and they enter the house. You see them like a dollhouse go from television, CCTV to CCTV. And it's it's just brilliantly done. Yeah. When he when Charlie goes home, the first thing he does is he goes up into his his writing studio in the in, on the top floor and he just watches these TVs and watches what's happening in his house. And, you know, he doesn't want to participate in, in any of it, but he, he just wants to, you know, sit there and observe. And it's it's really brilliantly done. I mean, the, the pan and tilt from one of one security screen to another. And um, you, you get, you know, it's a really interesting way to tell the story, but it also gives you a lot of insight in, into who Charlie is and just, you know, how he doesn't he doesn't want to participate in this life that he's created for himself. And then he's sitting there in his office with freaking Monica Vitti photo from La Ventura. And you're like, heck yeah, man. Like, like this is it. He he reminded me so much in this movie of, of Monica Vitti in, in both in La Ventura and especially uh, Le Eclise. Because it's the same character. This is an Antonioni movie. And I, and I guess that's why I like it so much. But funnier. It's much funnier than anything Antonioni has ever done. Oh, definitely. Also, I think what's, what saves... Charlie Bubbles as a character is that he's not a mean guy. I mean, if you if people engage with him, he'll respond. He'll go along with what you know, with what anybody wants him to do. He's he wants to want to participate in life, and I think he sort of shows that by you know when the when they pick up a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker is is being incredibly annoying, just asking him ridiculous questions about, uh, you know, being famous and, you know, talking about how his wife loves his books. And you expect Charlie Bubbles to shrug him off and roll his eyes and be, you know, give him one word answers. But he, you know, Charlie ends up giving him very straightforward answers. And as disconnected from life as he is, he he still is clearly trying to to be human. And I think that's why you end up liking him. I mean, I really think I think that this movie is about whether or not even Albert Finney realized it. I think this is this is a movie about just being profoundly depressed. Yeah, <laughs> because this, this is basically all it is. I mean, you can you can be as rich as you want. I mean, you know, it's in, in a lot of ways, this is a kitchen sink drama set inside of a convertible golden Rolls Royce. <laughs> I love the scene of him with Liza Minnelli. Oh, yeah. We haven't mentioned Liza Minnelli at all yet. Yeah, she plays his secretary, but she's also this like American 
who is, uh, you know, came to England because she loved him as a writer and she wants to be an author and she volunteers to become his secretary so that she can learn something. And she's wonderful. This is also her debut. And, uh, you know, everyone was, all the reviewers were pretty shitty and nasty to her because they thought she was ugly, basically, like, and, and annoying. I think she's great in this. She, I mean, she's super young and she, she comes across as exactly what she's meant to be, yeah. you know, the, the young girl who really, you know, is, is a little naive and a little bit, uh, you know, you know, she should, she goes and seduces him because she wants to, you know, she's, she's there to, to try and do that. And it's also the best scene of seduction I've seen in a movie in ages. It's like him, him sighing as he unhooks her bra. He's just going through the motions and, and, you know, she doesn't even notice which again kind of points back to this sort of depression thing where he's he's doing fine like he's there he's he's living in the moment but he's like emotionally not totally there these last three movies of his the the, the second half of the 60s he's just a prescription to Prozac is really all any of his characters need. He's just trying to work through his depression in all of them, Charlie Bubbles in particular. And this is the one where it feels like with the right medication you could be fine, Charlie. Oh, yeah. And, but, and then he keeps putting himself in these situations, though, that are really depressing. Like he, you know, they take this road trip back to uh, where he's from, which is, you know, Manchester in the movie. And it's a, you go back to this Manchester that's just unrecognizable. It's full of these like mass demolition that was happening during the time. So it's just like it looks like a bombed out wasteland. <laughs> And uh, there's a great scene of where, uh, you know, she's, you know, Liza's in the, the car with him and it's like, oh, you know, I expected more of a, a welcome for you, your homecoming, where it's just like, you know, again, these like miserable looking faces of impoverished looking people hanging out on the streets. And then the marching band comes out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see this marching band through just like completely empty, literally just empty, desolate area that's just full of uh, fog. And they sort of drive their car around it. It's this great scene. It's just that, you know, it's again, it's here he is back at home and he still doesn't even fit in. He still doesn't belong. But uh, I actually, I really love the scene. So he takes his son is, is soccer crazy and he's a young kid and he takes the kid to a soccer game. And it's another one of these things where it's this sort of obvious disconnect metaphor because they end up in this box seats. Uh, so while, you know, and especially Manchester is like a big soccer, like people died in that stadium, <laughs> like regularly. But, you know, it, it's it's a really sad scene because, you know, you have this kid who's all decked out in, in the colors and, and really excited to come to soccer. And Charlie, who just, you know, he's there, he even says to Liza Minnelli, like, I, I don't know, I could have the kid loves football, like whatever. I'm just I'm just going, you know, it's for him. But, you know, the kid is looking at him the entire time and he looks miserable. He looks unhappy. He's bored. He doesn't care. The crowd's cheering and going crazy. And, and, and there's, you know, Charlie Bubbles sitting there like an asshole, you know, having no reaction. And his kid then starts to, you know, he basically saps his, his son's enjoyment of, of the entire sport. Yeah, he keeps plying his son with a refreshment after refreshment, thinking, oh, this is what a dad is supposed to do, just uh, get my kid all the sodas and hot dogs he wants, and uh, and, and then he'll, he'll have a good time. And then his son leaves him, basically. Like, you know, they, he exits the box, and he sort of runs into a guy that he used to know, and of course he they have nothing in common anymore, and he's still, oh, it's an adult, I'm going to talk to this guy. And the son disappears, 
And he loses this kid in this massive stadium and he spends all this time wandering around trying to find him. He even files a police report. And I think this is actually the only other moment of the movie besides when he's smiling at the food fight is when he has to pull over to the road and vomit because he lost his son, Mm -hmm. which is actually like kind of a sad moment i mean like it's it's definitely i i'd say the most emotional scene in the film but the the movie doesn't dwell on it at all and it's definitely this weird like because then he gets back home and the kids went home by himself basically and they're all sitting there watching tv in the opening credits did you see that stephen frears was uh, credited as personal assistant to the director no who's yeah. that stephen frears he did um the grifters and uh dangerous liaisons and my beautiful laundrette and all sorts of great british movies huh. uh, his his debut in 71 i think was gumshoe and albert finney uh was was the star of that so you know i feel like probably this was where stephen freer's learned to direct was on the set of this movie and curious to know how much finney left in stephen freer's hands like what technical bits of directing business he he said okay Stephen, you, you take care of this what did you feel about the ending of this movie because the original ending was that charlie dies <laughs> really? and uh basically that he has like a princess diana kind of ending he gets followed by pressman and crashes his car and then um albert finney thought that was too brutal and so he changed it and softened it and the the end of the movie Oh, there was another one there was another ending too where he just says like i'm tired and then just dies <laughs> 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 yeah, well, the ending that it, it went for is, is definitely the best of the three. I actually found it really satisfying. It's a good metaphor for, I, I guess we're not, uh, this isn't a spoiler-free podcast. We can say that he just decides to, uh, he sees a, a hot air balloon in a, in a field and he you know, gets in it and just uh, heads off into the sky, presumably never to return. And, and I think that it's a, it's a good metaphor for how he's feeling the whole movie. And I think it's a pretty satisfying ending. It's you know, there's never going to be anything too conclusive in, in a character study like this. Nobody learns anything in the course of this movie, but it uh, it definitely gets a handle on this character really well, and and the and the and the balloon is you know, a good way to cap it. I agree. I, I liked it too. It was another moment of surrealism that you know maybe there is an actual balloon and maybe there wasn't. For what it's worth, uh, I have a quote here from old Albie where he says, um, you know, there was a finality to those death endings that I just don't believe for the situation. The fact that Sheila and I were writing about our experiences showed that there must be some possibility of survival, otherwise we would have killed ourselves. And uh, when Sheila said, I think he should just go away in a balloon, (laughs) I felt absolutely right for no known reason. Uh, I wanted to leave it open because I think the only answer uh, to his dilemma is time. It's a question mark. It's possible to be optimistic about it. Uh, it says he might be back, which I thought was nice. And 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 yeah, I, I really, uh, this was a really excellent movie. I was really impressed with this movie. Yeah, uh, seek this one out because I guarantee that most people listening to this uh, this podcast probably have not seen it because it's just been so hard to get your hands on. It's never available on home video in this country as far as i know so it's um if you ever have an opportunity check out charlie bubbles unlike the next movie yeah if you ever have an opportunity to see the picasso summer skip it
don't even want to talk about this movie. <laughs> I have no, nothing interesting to say about it. Well, this movie, <laughs> it's interesting in that um, it was written by Ray Bradbury. Uh, Based on a story by Ray Bradbury, which I'm curious to see what actually, you know, I bet it was a three-page short story based on how much story there is in this movie. Well, I'll tell you that apparently he was furious to see what the director had done to his screenplay and the fact that most of the movie was ad lib. So uh, it was, I, I think, very loosely based on whatever <laughs> Ray Bradbury did. Yeah, so directed by... Uh... Serge Bourguignon, who actually is not the credited director. I think he probably shot most of it. The credited director is Robert Salen, who's not known from anything else. And I think... It said he, you know, he he reshot the ending maybe in a couple other scenes, but this is, it's basically Serge Bourguignon who who made this movie, and he was famous for Sundays in Sibylle from the, the early '60s. It was sort of, he was not part of the French New Wave, but he sort of, you know, was swept along with it, and I think he won Cannes that year with that movie, and it's sort of a beloved movie that hasn't aged that well, but it's you know it's it's worth seeing. This movie is not, however. Well, it was also, it was produced and then animated by this guy, Wes Hershenson, who uh, I don't really, I didn't know, but I guess he was a former Disney animator and it was his personal ambition to meet Pablo Picasso. And basically this is his story. (laughs) And it's, it's a pretty thin story. It's, it's Albert Finney and his wife. uh, You know, he is unhappy being an architect in San Francisco, which was fun to see San Francisco in the 60s because I, I didn't, I, I thought it was San Francisco and it took me a little bit uh, to recognize it from the angles that they used. It really, it was just downtown, strictly like downtown San Francisco, right by the Bay Bridge where I used to work uh, briefly. Well, it starts with Telegraph Hill. So you're pretty, I don't know if you have any Golden Gate Bridge shots, but you definitely have Telegraph Hill. Pretty That's prominent. true. But uh, it seems like a really lame San Francisco. You know, you they see, you see them at this really shitty art party where the art is just like letter, like a, like a cue on a canvas. If I've learned one thing from these movies, it's that Albert Finney hates parties. <laughs> <laughs> every single one of these movies has a party and in every single one of them, he's miserable there. And his wife, uh, who's played by uh, Yvette uh, Mimiot, she, um, they go home. She apologizes for bringing him to this shitty party. And then that night he has a dream about Pablo Picasso and then wakes up and is like, we got to meet Pablo Picasso, <laughs> which I actually initially was kind of into because I've had those dreams where you're just like, I, I've like woken up and then suddenly realized like had a revelation about an artist and it blew my own mind kind of situation. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Uh, I didn't go to France, unfortunately. But if I had the money and I could take off as much time as these people seem to be able to and work, uh, I would do it. Fuck it. But they go to France to go meet Pablo Picasso. And, of course, he can't meet Pablo Picasso because, you know, it's not that easy to just, like, fly to France and, like, figure it out. So we just get a tour of southern France. And it's beautiful. I mean, It is beautiful. If there, I guess if there's any reason to see this movie, it's for the... The scenery and southern france is beautiful and the and the san francisco stuff is there's some nice time capsule stuff there i mean the whole the way the movie's put together is is so 60s that uh i guess i on some level i i uh kind of enjoyed watching it just to just to see these um you know like the they've got the four puzzle pieces that fit together and you see a different thing happening in each of the puzzle pieces and just you know these these sort of wacky techniques that 
never lived past the 60s, thankfully, but it's it's fun to see them. Yeah, and then you've got, um, you know, a pr almost a full third of this movie is devoted to animated Pablo Picasso paintings. So this Wes Hershenson took a bunch of Picasso's most famous paintings and, and animated them. You know, I've seen Mystery of Picasso where Picasso does it himself, and that's it's pretty fascinating, but... But even Picasso doing it himself is a little dull. But to have this this guy do the, the line version drawing of the of the same thing is just so excruciatingly dull. It's bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, like I like animation, and I was really unimpressed with this animation. It just seemed like it seemed like something that you would see on on Sesame Street, and that's not knocking Sesame Street as much as it's just like that this felt like it was for babies. Yeah. And and yet it was all like hardcore focusing on like the erotic aspects of Picasso's art. And it could have been okay in bits, you know, like, but it's just this sort of, I don't know if you were, we weren't high enough for this movie. <laughs> um, it just like fluctuates just, you know, because the art never stands still. It's just this like pulsating like, First it's her boobs, and then it's her vagina, and now it's her boobs. But it's all like Picasso style, so it's not really that explicit. Though apparently this sort of was known for having this erotic animation. <laughs> you know what's even more boring than uh, animated Picasso? Uh, watching Albert Finney learn how to fight a bull. Oh, God. I well, left the so... room. I, I, I had to go and I, I got myself a snack. I <laughs> sort of just listened from the other room while, while it was happening and just waiting for it to end. And, <laughs> and a full hour passed. So apparently this is part of this real story about how this, this guy, Louis Miguel Damignon, uh, was a bullfighter who was friends with Pablo Picasso and um, Wes Hershenson. Is, this is how he met Picasso, was, was befriending this guy and then getting some sort of uh, intro to Picasso. And Picasso, by the way, allowed him to make this movie but refused to appear in it, <laughs> which was, I think, smart. Yeah, no, there's a, they, they definitely kill a bull in this movie. It's sort of interesting in that it definitely explains to you what bullfighting is all about if you didn't already know. I mean, like, it's about, you know, they talk about the sort of the theory behind it and confronting death, and it's a lot of machismo horse shit. <laughs> <laughs> and what's with architects in the 60s? Why are they all successful and bored? I mean, starting with, <laughs> with Strangers When We Meet, Kirk Douglas is a successful but uh, dissatisfied with his life architect and then albert finney does it twice at the end of the 60s i, I don't know you know his hair kind of reminded me of donald trump in this movie <laughs> yeah he had some bad hair yeah it's weird i will point out that um albert finney does a cagney impersonation in like every single one of these movies i thought it was a bogart he definitely does it in this and two for the road sweetheart yeah the 30s gangster and he's not that good at it either. No. <laughs> I don't know why he keeps coming back to it. It seems to be the only thing he can do. That's like me with my Bob Dylan impersonation. Like, that's all I've got. And it's not that great. So uh, that was Albert Finney, man. In the 60s. The, the, I wish we didn't have to end with this movie because there were a lot of bright spots. Oh, I would say the majority was pretty bright. I mean, like, th this movie was stupid, and there's just nothing for the actors really to do. Like, no one really comes across as great in this movie because it's so flimsy and dumb. 
<laughs> but everything else I thought he did a pretty good job and even two for the road I thought was that's a perfectly you know like for me that was like a three star movie that was totally enjoyable it was beautiful it's certainly you know another movie where they're in and around France uh, the whole film and it, it looks great no I mean like I, I was really impressed with these movies you know it definitely you can see this sort of pattern of where he was going with his career and where he wanted to be um, and I think he was kind of an interesting guy and in, in, in bold to make these choices and, you know, try to continually sort of kill his career. And yet, you know, the only commercial failure here. Well, actually, I don't know about Picasso's Summer. <laughs> I think it didn't get much of a release at all. I think it, it didn't get any American release. And I think it got I think it got awesome held back movie. and then was released in the 70s. Yeah, I don't know. In America. But um, but Charlie Bubbles was his only commercial failure. And it's an awesome movie. So, I mean, it's definitely not a mainstream movie. I had a quote from him, too, where he talks about how he didn't make this for the Odeons of the world. And it's not it's not there for your, you know, 10 minutes of dreadful commercials and an interval for ice cream. You know, like he, he definitely was he, he might have even buried that movie by himself in a way because he didn't want it to have such a wide release. But, yeah, I mean, the guy is talented. Yeah, I would say... Uh... Night Must Falls is his best performance, and Charlie Bubbles is his uh, best movie of the 60s. How come we don't do rankings? That's really what we should do. Mm. Everybody loves that. You're not a list person, though. I'm a, I'm a list person. What's your... Come on, rank him. <laughs> oh, this one's easy. It uh, is easy. Charlie Bubbles. Oh, you know, it's not that easy. I think the Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Tom Jones, and Night Must Fall are all kind of at the same level for me. I can um, rank this. Charlie Bubbles, <laughs> Night Must Fall, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, Tom Jones, Two for the Road, Picasso Summer. Boom. Yeah, I think you're right. But anyhow, thanks, Albert Finney. <laughs> we'll, we'll miss you, Albert. Even though you were in a bunch of movies and I didn't even remember you were in them towards the end of your life. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.